it'd be difficult to imagine anything more exciting to do as a young man, woman, or couple in the world today than to be a full-time missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The message of the restored gospel we share is absolutely vital. It is from God, our Eternal Father, for every one of His children on earth, and is centered in His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. When that message is understood and lived, it can replace turmoil with peace, sorrow with happiness, and provide solutions to life's persistent challenges. We now have very clear direction for success in missionary service. It is provided by the guide, Preach My Gospel, and the resources developed to accompany it. The highly effective new missionary lessons are based on teaching by the Spirit rather than rote memorization. They have greatly improved sharing the gospel worldwide. Each mission present has been carefully taught how to implement the new materials. The result is a core of highly capable, devoted, enthusiastic mission presidents with the capacity to inspire and powerfully motivate their missionaries. The worldwide study and application of the concepts of Preach My Gospel by every missionary has strengthened our capacity to proclaim the message of the Restoration, to teach the plan of salvation and the gospel principles. Accompany it. Raising the bar of worthiness has had far-reaching consequences. There is more devoted service in the field, stronger companion relationships, much more effective teaching, and improved retention of converts. The overall guidance given to supervise missionary work is unequaled. It supports all missionary efforts worldwide through area presences, the seven presence of seventy, the quorum of the twelve, and the personal concentrated interest of the First Presidency. Exciting fields of labor the world over allow the inspiration of the Lord to call young men and women and devoted couples to challenging, exciting assignments conditioned to each personal need and capacity. I rejoice in the opportunity to participate in this captivating effort that potently blesses so many around the world. L.R.M. Russell Bauer has spoken about creating a gospel-sharing home. I'll discuss how to prepare to be a full-time missionary as an elder, a sister, or couple. The process begins in the home long before missionary age, when parents instill in the minds and hearts of every young boy the concept of when I go on a mission, not if I go on a mission. Children are best taught gospel truths in the home, where instruction can be adapted to the age and capacity of each child. In the home, the whole armor of truth is tailor-fit to the individual characteristics of each child. Parental teaching qualifies children for life and prepares worthy young men for the joy of missionary service. In the home, a young girl can understand 
that her primary role is to be a wife and mother. Yet, as that preparation unfolds, there may be an opportunity to serve a full-time mission, provided recent counsel of the First Presidency is followed. Quote, Were these single women ages 21 and older may be recommended to serve full-time missions. These sisters can make a valuable contribution, but they should not be pressured to serve. Bishops should not recommend them for missionary service if it will interfere with eminent marriage prospects. Many parents are using parts of the guide Preach My Gospel to stress the concepts that will bear fruit as their children's testimonies mature while they are nurtured in the home. As a young boy, you can learn how to fulfill your duty as a future priesthood bearer. You will be helped to understand and apply important teachings of the Lord. You will be strengthened to live worthily, to be able to receive the sacred temple ordinances, and to serve a full-time mission. Such experiences will develop a foundation for the later blessing of your being a strong husband and father. Portions of Priest My Gospel will help you as a young woman to understand and apply doctrine for your role as wife and mother. Should you choose to serve a full-time mission, you will have a foundation for it. Seminary programs will help you as a young man or woman to lay a foundation for happiness and success in life. There is a special course in the Institute program and at the three Brigham Young Universities that can prepare you for missionary service. It is founded in the principles contained in Preach My Gospel and goes hand-in-hand with that powerful resource. It will give you a head start for when you are called to serve. The power and effectiveness of the guide preached my gospel for missionaries, leaders, members, and parents is manifest by the fact that just under one million copies have been distributed thus far. Are you benefiting from your own personal copy? As a bishop or branch president, Through motivating interviews, you can bless the life of every young man in your ward, as well as appropriate couples, by encouraging them to prepare for full-time mission service. Not only will you address those potential missionaries, but you may answer the prayers of parents who have a maturing son not yet committed to a mission, despite their efforts to encourage that desire. For example, from childhood through maturing years, our daughter, Mary Lee, had heard her parents speak of our treasured missionary experiences. We would explained how challenging missionary opportunities had enriched our lives and laid a foundation for all that we treasure in life. Yet we taught that it was her decision of whether she would serve or not. Through her growing years, it was clear that she intended to be a missionary. However, 
as missionary age approached, her exciting experiences in the university began to present attractive alternatives. Once, when she mentioned wrestling with that uncertainty, she was counseled to talk to a bishop. Appointment was arranged. As she sat down before a choice bishop, she asked, What do you think of my serving a full-time mission? The bishop jumped from his chair, clapped his hands on the desk, and said, That's the greatest thing I can imagine for you. That comment tipped the scales. Mary Lee served a most effective mission in Spain that unveiled hidden capacities, matured her spiritual development, and caused to flower capabilities that have blessed her as a wife and mother. The bishop that had such a profound influence in my daughter's life is Jerry Willard Marriott, Jr., currently in Area 70. But we remember it most for what he did for our daughter, Mary Lee. Now in her own family, with the strong examples of a returned missionary father and mother, a son and daughter have fulfilled exemplary missions. The remaining son will clearly be a missionary, and the last daughter will in time make the proper choice. <clears throat> Another grandchild, following the footsteps of his father, has been recently called to serve in the Mexico Cuernavaca Mission. Bishops and branch presidents, you can have that powerful impact in the life of missionaries you encourage and prepare as well in the lives of their posterity. Use your ironic priesthood quorum leaders and advisors, as well as the high priests, elders, and women leaders to help you prepare to call as many worthy missionaries as you can. From the use of the new missionary resources, many more missionaries you recommend arrive in the field better prepared and highly motivated to serve. While most potential candidates can, with little effort, be ready, a few need substantial adjustments in their lives to qualify. With the support of parents, help them to meet the standards. Pray about which couples can be encouraged to submit papers for a call to full-time missionary service. There is an urgent need for them. I am constantly amazed at how the Holy Ghost inspires matching the characteristics and needs of each missionary and couple to the widely varying circumstances of missionary service throughout the world. I have observed how some of the strongest, most capable elders and sisters are called to the United States and Canada to keep the roots of the Church strong there. I have seen how missionaries who return from unusual assignments, such as adapting to the native culture of a Pacific island, Mongolia, the highlands of Guatemala, or otherwise serve with minimum personal contact with the mission president, develop previously unknown personal capacities extremely well. Now, may I speak to you from my heart? 
of what an honorable full-time mission has meant to me personally. I grew up in a home with very good parents, but my father was not a member, and my mother was less active. After my mission, that changed. They became strong members and served devotedly in the temple. He is sealer. She an ordinance worker. But as a young man, like many of you today, I had no way to judge personally the importance of a mission. I fell in love with an exceptional young woman. At a critical point in our courtship, she made it very clear that she would only be married in the temple to a returned missionary. Duly motivated, I served a mission in Uruguay. <laughs> it was not easy. The Lord gave me many challenges that became stepping stones to personal growth. There I gained my testimony that God the Father and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, did in fact visit Joseph Smith to begin a restoration of truth, priesthood authority, and the true Church on earth. I gained a witness that Joseph Smith is a singular prophet. I learned essential doctrines. I discovered what it meant to be led by the Spirit. Many a night, I got up as my companion slept to pour my heart out to the Lord for guidance and direction. I pled for the ability to express effectively in Spanish my testimony and the truth I was learning to a people I'd come to love. Those prayers were abundantly answered. At the same time, my future eternal companion, Janine, was being molded to become an exceptional wife and mother by her own mission. Most importantly, all that I now hold dear in life began to mature in the mission field. Had I not been encouraged to be a missionary, I would not have the eternal companion and precious family I dearly love. I am confident I would not have had the exceptional professional opportunities that stretched me to the limit. I am certain that I would not have received the sacred callings with opportunities to serve for which I will be eternally grateful. My life has been richly blessed beyond measure because I served a full-time mission. Now can you understand why I am so anxious to motivate every one of you young men to be a worthy missionary? Can you comprehend why I encourage you as a mature couple to plan, if health permits, to serve the Lord? As missionaries, can you see why well, I suggest that some of you young women, where there is a desire and it will not affect an impending marriage, to seriously consider serving the Lord as a missionary? Our home has been greatly blessed 
by a wife and mother who chose to serve a full-time mission during my period of service. If you're a young man wondering whether you ought to fulfill a full-time mission, don't approach that vital decision with your own wisdom alone. Seek the counsel of your parents, your bishop, or stake president. In your prayers, ask to have the will of the Lord to be made known to you. I know that a mission will provide extraordinary blessings for you now and throughout your life. I urge you not to pray to know whether you should go. Rather, ask the Lord to guide you in whatever may be necessary to become a worthy, empowered, full-time missionary. You will never regret serving a mission, but you most probably will regret not serving if that's your choice. I know that Jesus is the Christ, that His Church and the fullness of His gospel has been restored to earth through a singularly important prophet, Joseph Smith. I testify that devoted full-time missionary service is a source of great happiness and rich blessings, not only for those who hear the message, but for those who, under the guidance of the Spirit, deliver it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Harry DeLayer was late to the auction on that snowy day in 1956, and all the good horses had already been sold. The few that remained were old and spent and had been bought by a company that would salvage them. Harry, the riding master at a girls' school in Pennsylvania, was about to leave when one of these horses, an uncared-for gray gelding with all the ugly-looking wounds on his legs caught his eye. The animal still bore the marks that had been made by heavy work, harnesses, and evidence to the hard life it had led. But something about him captured Harry's attention, and so he offered $80 for him. It was snowing when Harry's children saw the horse for the first time, and because of the coat of snow, on the horse's back, the children named him Snowman. Harry took good care of the horse, who turned out to be a gentle and reliable friend, a horse the girls liked to ride because he was steady and didn't startle like some of the others. In fact, Snowman made such a rapid improvement that a neighbor purchased him for twice what Harry had originally paid. But Snowman kept disappearing from the neighbor's pasture, sometimes ending up in adjoining potato fields, other times back at Harry's. It appeared that the horse must have jumped over the fence between the properties, but that seems impossible. Harry never had seen the snowman jump over anything much higher than a fallen log. But eventually the neighbor's patience came to an end and he insisted Harry take back the horse. For years, Harry, Harry's great dream 
had been to produce a champion jumping horse. He had had moderate success in the past, but in order to compete at the highest levels, he knew it'd have to buy a pedigreed horse that had been specifically bred to jump. And that kind of pedigree would cost far, far more than he could afford. Snowman was already getting old. He was eight when Harry had purchased him, and he had been badly treated. But apparently Snowman wanted to jump. So Harry decided to see what the horse could do. What Harry saw made him think that maybe his horse had a chance to compete. In 1956, Harry entered Snowman in his first competition. Snowman stood among the beautifully bred champion horses looking very much out of place. Other horse breeders called Snowman a flea-bitten gray. But a wonderful, unbelievable thing happened that day. Snowman won. Harry continued to enter Snowman in, in other competitions, and Snowman continued to win. Audiences cheered every time Snowman had won, won an event. He became a symbol of how extraordinary an ordinary horse could be. He appeared on television. Stories and books were written about him. As Snowman continued to win, one buyer offered $100,000 for the old plow horse, but Harry would not sell. In 1958 and 59, Snowman was named Horse of the Year. Eventually, the gray gelding, who had had one once been marked for sale to a low bidder, was inducted into the Show Jumping Hall of Fame. For many, Snowman was much more than a horse. He became an example of hidden, untapped potential that lies within each one of us. I've had the opportunity to become acquainted with many wonderful people from many walks of life. I've known rich and poor, famous and modest, wise and otherwise. Some were, <laughs> some were burdened with heavy sorrows. Others radiated a uh, confidential peace. Some smoldered with unquenchable bitterness, while others glowed with irrepressible joy. Some appeared defeated, while others, in spite of adversity, overcame discouragement and despair. I have heard some claim, perhaps only partly in jest, that the only happy people are those who simply don't have a firm grasp of what's happening around them. But I believe otherwise. I have known many who walk a joy, enjoy, and radiate happiness. I have known many who live lives of abundance. I believe I know why today I want to list a few of the characteristics that the happiest people I know have in common. They are qualities that can transform ordinary existence into a life of excitement and abundance. First, they drink deeply of living waters. The Saviors taught that whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give shall never thirst, for it shall be in, that, in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Fully understood and embraced, the gospel of Jesus Christ heals broken hearts, infuses meaning into lives, binds loved ones together with ties that transcend mortality, and bring to life a sublime joy. President Lorenzo, Lorenzo Snow said, The Lord has not given us to the gospel 
that we may go around mourning all the days of our lives. Close quote. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a religion of mourning and gloom. The faith of our fathers is one of hope and joy. It is not a gospel of chains, but a gospel of wings. To embrace fully is to be filled with it and with wonder, and to walk with an inner life, inner fire. Our Savior proclaimed, I am come that I might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Do you seek peace of mind? Drink, de- drink deeply of living waters. Do you seek forgiveness, peace, understanding, and joy? Drink deeply of living waters. The abundant life is a spiritual life. Too many sit at the banquet table of the gospel of Jesus Christ and merely nibble at the feast placed before them. They go through the motions, attending their meetings, perhaps, glancing at scriptures, repeating familiar prayers, but their hearts are far away. If they are not honest, they would admit to being more interested in the latest neighborhood rumors stock market trends, and their favorite TV show than they are about the supernal wonders and sweet ministerings of the Holy Spirit. Do you wish to partake of this living water and experience that divine well springing up within you to everlasting life? Then be not afraid. Believe with all your hearts. Develop an unshakable faith in the Son of God. Let your hearts reach out in earnest prayer. Fill your minds with knowledge of Him. Forsake your weaknesses. Walk in holiness and harmony with the commandments. Drink deeply of the living waters of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second quality of those who live abundant lives is that they fill their hearts with love. Love is the essence of the gospel and the greatest of all the commandments. commandments. The Savior taught that every other commandment and prophetic teaching Hang upon it. The apostle, wrote, Paul, the apostle Paul wrote that all the law is filled, fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We often never know the, the reach of a simple act of kindness. The prophet Joseph Smith was a model of compassion and love. One day a group of eight African Americans arrived at the prophet's home in Nauvoo. They had traveled from their home in Buffalo, New York, some 800 miles away, so they, could, so they could be with the prophet of God and with the saints. Although they were free, they were forced to hide from those who might mistake them as runaway slaves. They endured cold and hardship, wearing out shoes and then socks until they walked on bare feet all the way to the city of Joseph. When they arrived in Nauvoo, the prophet welcomed them into his home and helped each of them find a place to stay. But there was one girl, a girl named Jane, who did not have a place to go, and she wept, not knowing what to do. We won't have tears here, Joseph said to her. He turned to Emma and said, Here's a girl who says she doesn't have a home. Don't you think she has a home here? Emma agreed. From that day on, Jane lived as a member of the family. Years after the prophet's martyrdom and after she had joined the pioneers and made the long trek to Utah, Jane said that sometimes she would still 
wake still, wake up still in the still of the night, uh, and just think about Brother Joseph and Sister Emma, and how good they were to me. Joseph Smith, she said, was the finest man I ever saw on earth. President Gordon B. Hinckley has said that those who reach out to lift and serve others will come to know happiness and never know before heaven knows where there are so very, very, very many people in this world who need help. Oh, so very many. Let's get the cankering, selfish attitude out of our lives, my brothers and sisters, and stand a little taller and reach a little higher in the service of others." Close quote. We are all busy. It's easy to find excuses for not reaching out to others, but I imagine they will sound as hollow to our Heavenly Father as the elementary schoolboy who gave his teacher a note asking that he be excused from school. March 30, 30th through 34th. <laughs> Those who devote their lives in pursuit of their own selfish desires at the exclusion of others will discover that in the end their joy is shallow and their lives have little meaning. On a tombstone of one such person was carved the following epitaph. Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering pelf. Now where is he or how is he fair? How is he fares? Nobody knows and nobody cares. We're all happiest when our lives are connected to others through unselfish love and service. President Jerome Clark taught that there is no greater blessing, no greater joy and happiness than comes to us from relieving the distress, distress of others. The third quality of those who live abundant lives is that they will help, with the help of our Heavenly Father, create a masterpiece of their lives. No matter our age, circumstances, or abilities, each one of us can create something remarkable of his life. David saw himself as a shepherd, but the Lord saw him as a king of Israel. Joseph of Egypt served as a slave, but the Lord saw him as a seer. Mormon wore the armor of a soldier, but the Lord saw him as a prophet. We are sons and daughters of an immortal, loving, and all-powerful Father in heaven. We are all created as much from the dust of eternity as we are from the dust of the earth. Every one of us has potential we can scarcely imagine. The Apostle Paul wrote, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. How is it possible then that so many see themselves merely as an old gray horse that isn't much good? There's a spark of greatness within each one of us, a gift from our, our loving and eternal Heavenly Father. What we do with it, what we do with that gift is up to us. Love the Lord with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. Enlist in a noble cause. Create of your homes sanctuaries of holiness and strengthen and magnify your callings in the Church. Fill your minds with learning. Strengthen your testimonies. Reach out to others. Create of your life a masterpiece. Brothers and sisters, 
The abundant life does not come to us packaged and ready-made. It's not something we can order and expect to find delivered with the afternoon mail. It does not come without hardship or sorrow. It comes through faith, hope, and charity. And it comes to those who, in spite of hardship and sorrow, and words of one of of the writer who said, in the depth of the winter, finally learned that uh, there lay an invincible summer. The abundant life isn't something we arrive at. Rather, it is a magnificent journey that began long, long ago and never, never will end. One of the great comforts of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the knowledge that this earthly existence is merely a twinkle in the eye of eternity. Whether we are at the beginning of our mortal journey or at the end, this life is merely one step, one step. Our search for the abundant life is cloaked not only in the robes of this mortal clay. Its true end can only be comprehended from the perspective of eternities that stretch infinitely before us. Brothers and sisters, it is in the quest of the abundant life that we find our destiny. As illustrated in the story of an old discarded horse who had within him the soul of a champion, there is within each one of us a divine spark of greatness. Who knows of what we are capable if we only try? The abundant life is within our reach if we only will drink deeply of living water, fill our hearts with love, and create of our lives a masterpiece. That we may do so is my humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. It was the day after Christmas, 1946, in Santa Clara, Utah. As a young nine-year-old boy, I asked my mother if I could take my Christmas gift, a new bow and arrow set, and go up on the hill behind our home to hunt for rabbits. It was late in the afternoon, and Mother was reluctant, but with my coaxing she agreed to let me go, but only if I was back home before dark. As I reached the top of the hill, I put an arrow on the bow and started walking quietly through the sage and chaparral bushes, hoping to see a rabbit feeding at the base of the brush while the tender grass was still green. I was startled by a large jackrabbit that jumped out from a sage bush right in front of me. I pulled back on the bow, taking a quick aim, and let the arrow fly at the fleeing, darting rabbit. The arrow missed and the rabbit disappeared through the brush ahead. I went to where I thought the arrow had hit the ground to retrieve it. Only three arrows came with the bow, and I didn't want to lose this one. I looked where the arrow was supposed to be, but it wasn't there. I looked all around the area where I was sure it landed, but I couldn't find it. The sun was setting in the west, and I knew that it would be dark in about thirty minutes and I did not want to be late getting home. I searched again the area where the arrow should have been, looking carefully under every bush, but it was not to be found. Time was running out, and I needed to start for home to get there before dark. 
I decided to pray and ask Heavenly Father to help me find the arrow. I dropped to my knees, closed my eyes, and prayed to my Father in Heaven. I told Him I didn't want to lose my new arrow, and I asked Him to show me where to find it. While still on my knees, I opened my eyes, and there in the sagebush immediately in front of me at eye level I saw the colored feathers of the arrow partly hidden by the branches. I grabbed the arrow and began to run for home, arriving there just before dark. I will never forget that special experience. Our Heavenly Father had answered my prayer. That was the first time I had prayed for Him to help me, and He did. That evening I learned to have faith and trust in my Father in Heaven. When we need help, even as a naive little boy with an important concern, our Heavenly Father hears our prayer, and with love He gives us the guidance we seek. Jesus Christ, our Savior, said to us, Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand and give the answer to thy prayers. From the scriptures, James instructs us, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. President James E. Faust teaches us, A fervent, sincere prayer is a two-way communication which will do much to bring His Spirit flowing like healing water to help with the trials, hardships, aches, and pains we all face. Prayer is one of the stepping stones on the path that leads us to eternal life with our Father in Heaven. Faith is another stepping stone that is critical to our eternal salvation. The Savior also said, And whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. Thirty years ago a true story unfolded in the most remote part of New Zealand. The wind-swept Chatham Islands are located in the South Pacific Ocean, about 500 miles east of Christ Church. A hardy and resourceful 650 people lived there, isolated in the lonely, harsh environment of those days, and a young, inexperienced, and newly qualified doctor was responsible for their medical care. An eight-year-old boy, Shane, had sustained a serious head injury 40 miles away on the far side of the island. He was being rushed in across the swamps and along the beaches on the back seat of an old rusty car to the four-bed cottage hospital. He was unconscious. The young doctor was unprepared to handle such a case with little experience and having experience and having only the most basic of surgical instruments. Shane was in a critical condition. There was obvious bleeding inside his fractured skull, and the blood clotting could fatally compress his brain. The doctor had never even seen a brain operation, but he knew he had to perform the delicate surgery immediately or watch a little boy die. 
There were blood donors to be called in, blood to be cross-matched, an anesthetic to be prepared. The antique X-ray machine had broken down, so no helpful X-rays could be taken. There was the first of many phone calls to Wellington, where a neurosurgeon tried to imagine the scene and guide the nervous young doctor through a process of a very delicate surgical procedure. Shane's mother prayed. The doctor prayed. The nurses prayed. The doctor's wife prayed. Responsibilities had to be delegated in this busy scene. The policeman administered the anesthetic. A nurse became the surgical assistant, and the work began under the angle poise light as darkness fell. The first surgical incision, nervously performed, did not reveal any bleeding, so other incisions needed to be performed through Shane's small skull to find the source of the bleeding. More calls to the neurosurgeon for direction and reassurance were made, and his advice was followed in every exact detail. After six hours of anxiety and pressure, the surgery was completed. The hemorrhage of blood into the brain cavity ceased, and a successful outcome was achieved. Serenity replaced chaos. It was around midnight. The doctor was a young father. He thought about his family and the blessings they enjoyed. He was grateful for the many tender mercies of the Lord in his life, and especially for the presence of the Comforter during the last twelve hours. He was grateful for the presence of an unseen expert who imparted of his far greater knowledge freely in his time of need. At the critical time in a desperate situation, the Lord provided the guidance and the ability for a young, inexperienced doctor to perform a miracle and preserve the life of a small boy who was precious before the Lord. Neil Hutchison was the young doctor who prayed for help and had the faith to rely on the Lord and the neurosurgeon, enabling him to perform a miracle under the most difficult conditions. He now serves as the bishop in the East Coast Bays Ward in Auckland, New Zealand. Bishop Hutchison advised me. I had the privilege of meeting Shane and his father a couple of years ago in Christ Church for the first time since that day in 1976. He is an electrician with his own business and is aware of no defects from his long operation. He is such a nice chap, and I can't help pondering on how thin the veil is between this life and the next. And Christ hath said, If you will have faith in me, ye shall have power to do whatsoever thing is expedient in me. Elder Richard G. Scott taught, You will gather the fruits of faith as you follow the principles God has established for its use. One of those principles is to trust in God and in His willingness to provide help when needed, no matter how challenging the circumstance. Elder Robert D. Hales testified that Joseph Smith, as a 14-year-old boy, exercised unwavering faith 
and followed the prophet James' direction to ask of God. Because of Joseph's prophetic calling, God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ appeared to him and gave him instruction. President Thomas S. Monson has encouraged us as we offer unto the Lord our family and personal prayers, let us do so with faith and trust in Him. If any of us has been slow to hearken to the counsel to pray always, there is no finer hour to begin than now. It doesn't matter whether it's a little boy with a simple request or a medical doctor with a critical, life-threatening challenge before him. Heavenly Father will hear our humble prayer and will give us the comfort and the guidance we seek. A third stepping stone and an essential part of the path that leads us safely home to our Father in Heaven is the family. President Gordon B. Hinckley teaches us the family is divine. It was instituted by our Heavenly Father. It encompasses the most sacred of all relationships. Only through its organization can the purposes of the Lord be fulfilled. President Hinckley continues, I believe in the family where there is a husband who regards his companion as his greatest asset and treats her accordingly, where there is a wife who looks upon her husband as her anchor and strength, her comfort and security, where there are children who look to mother and father with respect and gratitude, where there are parents who look upon those children as blessings and find a great and serious and wonderful challenge in their nurture and rearing." Close quote. I sincerely believe that in the sanctity of the family, our love, loyalty, respect, and support for each other can become the sacred shield that will protect us from the fiery darts of the devil. In the family circle filled with the love of Christ, we will be able to find peace, happiness, and protection from the wickedness of the world that surrounds us. I testify that the family is the unit and the vehicle through which we can be sealed together and return as a family into the presence of our heavenly parents there to experience eternal joy and happiness. I sincerely pray that we will use the stepping stones of prayer, faith, and our family to prepare and help us to return to our Father in Heaven and gain life eternal, that the very purpose for being upon this earth will be successfully accomplished. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I have a friend who is a member of a political panel that is seen each week on national television. Explaining her role, she said, We are encouraged to speak before thinking. We appear to be living in an era in which many are speaking without thinking. 
encouraging emotional reactions rather than thoughtful responses, whether it be on the national or international stage, in personal relations or in politics, at home or in the public forum, voices grow ever more strident, and giving and taking offense appear to be chosen rather than inadvertent. The Lord has warned that from the beginning and throughout history, Satan would stir up people's hearts to anger. In the Book of Mormon, Laman set a pattern of soul murmuring as to stir anger, to stoke rage, and to incite murder. Time and again in the Book of Mormon we find deluded and wicked men inciting rage and provoking conflict. In the days of Captain Moroni, the apostate Amalickiah inspired the hearts of the Lamanites against the Nephites. Amulon and the wicked priests of Noah, Nehor, Korahor, Zoram, the apostate, the dishonor, dishonor roll goes on throughout the Book of Mormon, were agitators who inspired distrust, fueled controversy, and deepened hatreds. In speaking to Enoch, the Lord indicated that both the time of his birth and the time preceding his second coming would be days of wickedness and vengeance. And the Lord has said that in the last days wrath shall be poured out upon the earth without mixture. Wrath is defined both as the righteous indignation of God and as the very human instances of impetuous ardor and deep or violent anger. The former arises from the concern of a loving father whose children are often without affection and they hate their own blood, whereas the latter wrath arises from a people without order and without mercy, strong in their perversion. I fear the earth is experiencing both wraths, and I suspect the divine wrath is very much provoked by those who are stirring up the hearts of men to wickedness, slander, and violent hatreds. The first casualties of human wrath are truth and understanding. James counseled that we be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. As Enoch observed, God's throne is one of peace, justice, and truth. Whether they be false friends or unrighteous teachers, artists or entertainers, commentators or letter writers to local newspapers, seekers of power or wealth, beware of those who stir us up to such anger that calm reflection and charitable feelings are suppressed. Alma at the Waters of Mormon invited those who would enter into a covenant relationship with God to stand as witnesses of God and to bear one another's burdens as those who have indeed entered into a sacred covenant. We must remain true to the way, the truth, and the life who is Jesus Christ. Have we, who have taken upon us the name of Christ, slipped unknowingly into patterns of slander, of evil speaking, 
and bitter stereotyping, have personal or partisan or business or religious differences been translated into a kind of demonizing of those of different views? Do we pause to understand the seemingly different positions of others and seek, where possible, common ground? I recall that as a graduate student I wrote a critique of an important political philosopher. It was clear that I disagreed with him. My professor told me that my paper was good, but not good enough. Before you launch into your criticism, she said, you must first present the strongest case for the position you are opposing, one that the philosopher himself could accept. I redid the paper. I still had important differences with the philosopher, but I understood him better and I saw the strengths and virtues as well as limitations of his belief. I learned a lesson that I have applied across the spectrum of my life. General Andrew Jackson, as he walked along the line at the Battle of New Orleans, said to his men, Gentlemen, elevate your guns a little lower. I think many of us need to elevate our guns a little lower. On the other hand, we need to raise the level of private and public discourse. We should avoid caricaturing the positions of others, constructing straw men, if you will, and casting unwarranted aspersions on their motivations and character. We need, as the Lord counsel, to uphold honest, wise, and good men and women wherever they are found and to recognize that there are among all sects, parties, and denominations those who are kept from the truth of the gospel because they know not where to find it. Would we hide that light because we have entered into the culture of slander, of stereotyping, of giving, and seeking offense? It is far too easy sometimes to fall into a spirit of mockery and cynicism in dealing with those of contrary views. We demoralize or demean so as to bring others or their ideas in contempt. It is a primary tool of those who occupy the large and spacious building that Father Lehi saw in vision. Jude, the brother of Christ, warned, that there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the spirit. Closely related to mockery is a spirit of cynicism. Cynics are disposed to find and to catch at fault. Implicitly or explicitly, they display a sneering disbelief in sincerity and rectitude. Isaiah spoke of those who watch for iniquity and make a man an offender for a word and lay a snare for him that reproveth in the gate and turn aside the just for a thing of naught. In this regard, the Lord has counseled in latter days that we cease to find fault one with another, and above all things clothe ourselves with the bond of charity, as with the mantle which is the bond of perfectness and peace. 
President George Albert Smith observed, There is nothing in the world more deleterious or harmful to the human family than hatred, prejudice, suspicion, and the attitude that some people have toward their fellows of unkindness. In matters of politics, he warned, Whenever your politics cause you to speak unkindly of your brethren, know this, you are upon dangerous ground. Speaking of the great mission of the Latter-day Kingdom, he counseled, This is not a militant church to which we belong. This is a church that holds out peace to the world. It is not our duty to go into the world and find fault with others, neither to criticize men because they do not understand. But it is our privilege in kindness and love to go among them and divide with them the truth that the Lord has revealed in this latter day. The Lord has constituted us as a people for a special mission. As he told Enoch in ancient times, the day in which we live would be one of darkness, but it would also be a time when righteousness would come down from heaven and truth would be sent forth out of the earth to bear once more testimony of Christ and his atoning mission. As with a flood, that message would sweep the world and the Lord's elect would be gathered out from the four corners of the earth. Wherever we live in the world, we have been molded as a people to be the instruments of the Lord's peace. In the words of Peter, we have been claimed by God for his own to proclaim the triumph of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. We cannot afford to be caught up in a world prone to give and to take offense. Rather, as the Lord revealed to both Paul and Mormon, we must neither envy nor be puffed up in pride. We are not easily provoked nor behave unseemly. We rejoice not in iniquity, but in the truth. Surely this is the pure love of Christ, which we represent. In a world beset by wrath, the prophet of our day, President Gordon B. Hinckley, has counseled, Now there is much that we can and must do in these perilous times. We can give our opinions on the merit of the situation as we see it. But never let us become a party to words or works of evil concerning our brothers and sisters in various nations on one side or the other. Political differences never justify hatred or ill will. I hope that the Lord's people may be at peace one with another during times of trouble, regardless of what loyalties they may have to different governments or parties. As true witnesses of Christ in the latter days, let us not fall into the darkness so that in the words of Peter, we cannot see afar off. But let us be fruitful in the testimony of Christ and his restored gospel, in thought, in speech, in deed. God lives. Jesus Christ is the way, 
the truth, and the life. Joseph Smith, the great prophet of the Restoration, was the instrument by which we have been constituted as a people led even today by a prophet of God, President Gordon B. Hinckley. Let us daily renew in our hearts the pure love of Christ and overcome with our Master the darkness of the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Last summer, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel to San Diego, California, and there see Shakespeare's Macbeth at the Old Globe Theater. We saw two performances because our daughter Carolyn was playing the part of one of the three witches in that play. Of course, we were delighted to see her in the play, and even more delighted when, at a dramatic moment, she said those famous lines, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. When I heard that, I thought how useful it would be to have an early warning system which would tell us about the approach of evil and allow us to be prepared for it, because evil is coming towards us whether or not we have an early warning system. On a later occasion, my wife and I were driving across country one night and were approaching a great city. As we came over the hills and saw the bright lights on the horizon, I nudged my wife awake and said, Behold the city of Babylon. <laughs> of course, there is no particular city today which personifies Babylon. Babylon was, in the time of ancient Israel, a city which had become sensual, decadent, and corrupt. The principal building in the city was a temple to a false god, which we often refer to as Bel or Baal. However, that sensuality, corruption, and decadence and the worshiping of false gods is to be seen in many cities, great and small, scattered across the globe. As the Lord has said, they seek not to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way and after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world. Too many of the people of the world have come to resemble the Babylon of old, by walking in their own way and following a God whose image is in the likeness of the world. <clears throat> One of the greatest challenges we will face is to be able to live in that world but somehow not be off that world. We have to create Zion in the midst of Babylon. Zion in the midst of Babylon, what a luminous and incandescent phrase as a light shining in the midst of spiritual darkness. What a concept to hold close to our hearts as we see Babylon becoming more widespread. We see Babylon in our cities. We see Babylon in our communities. We see Babylon everywhere. And with the encroachment of Babylon, we have to create Zion in the midst of it. We should not allow ourselves to be engulfed by the culture which surrounds us. We seldom realize the extent to which we are a product of the culture of our place and times. During the days of ancient Israel, the people of the Lord were an island of the one true God, surrounded by an ocean of idolatry. 
the waves of that ocean crashed incessantly upon the shores of Israel. Despite the commandment to make no graved image and bow down before it, Israel seemingly could not help itself, influenced by the culture of the place and times. Over and over again, despite the prohibition of the Lord, despite what prophet and priest had said, Israel went seeking after strange gods and bowed down before them. How could Israel have forgotten the Lord that brought them out of Egypt? They were constantly pressured by what was popular in the ambience in which they lived. What an insidious thing is this culture amidst which we live. It permeates our environment, and we think we're being reasonable and logical when all too often we have been molded by the ethos, what the Germans called the zeitgeist, or the culture of our place and time. Because my wife and I have had the opportunity to live in ten different countries, we have seen the effect of the ethos on behavior. Customs which are perfectly acceptable in one culture are viewed as unacceptable in another. Language which is polite in some places is viewed as abhorrent in others. People in every culture move within a cocoon of self-satisfied self-deception, fully convinced that the way they see things is the way things really are. Our culture tends to determine what foods we like, how we dress, what constitutes polite behavior, what sports we should follow, what our taste in music should be, the importance of education, and our attitudes towards honesty. It also influences men as to the importance of recreation or religion, influences women about the priority of career or childbearing, and has a powerful effect on how we approach procreation and moral issues. All too often, we are like puppets on a string as our culture determines what is cool. <laughs> there is, of course, a zeitgeist to which we should pay attention, and that is the ethos of the Lord, the culture of the people of God. As Peter states it, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is the ethos of those who keep the Lord's commandments, walk in his ways, and live by every word which proceedeth forth out of the mouth of God. If that makes us peculiar, so be it. My involvement with the building of the Manhattan Temple gave me the opportunity to be in the temple quite often prior to the dedication. It was wonderful to sit in the celestial room and be there in perfect silence without a single sound to be heard coming from the busy New York streets outside. How was it possible that the temple could be so reverently silent when the hustle and bustle of the metropolis was just a few yards away? The answer was in the construction of the temple. The temple was built within the walls of an existing building, 
and the inner walls of the temple were connected to the outer walls at only a very few junction points. That is how the temple, Zion, limited the effects of Babylon or the world outside. There may be a lesson here for us. We can create the real Zion amongst us by limiting the extent to which Babylon will influence our lives. When, 600 years before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon and conquered Judah, he carried away the people of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar selected some of the young men for special education and training. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were to be the favored ones amongst the young people brought to Babylon. The king's servant instructed them that they were to eat of the king's meat and drink of the king's wine. Let us clearly understand the pressures that the four young men were under. They had been carried away as captives by a conquering power and were in the household of a king who held the power of life or death over them. And yet Daniel and his brothers refused to do that which they believed to be wrong, however much the Babylonian culture believed it to be right. And for that fidelity and courage, the Lord blessed them and gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. Seduced by our culture, we often hardly recognize our idolatry as our strings are pulled by that which is popular in the Babylonian world. Indeed, as the poet Wordsworth said, the world is too much with us. In his first epistle, John writes, I have written unto you because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the world. Love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. We do not need to adopt the standards, the mores, and morals of Babylon. We can create Zion in the midst of Babylon. We can have our own standards for music and literature and dance and film and language. We can have our own standards for dress and deportment, for politeness and respect. We can live in accordance with the Lord's moral laws. We can limit how much of Babylon we allow into our homes by the media of communication. We can live as a Zion people if we wish to. Will it be hard? Of course it will, for the waves of Babylonian culture crash incessantly against our shores. Will it take courage? Of course it will. We have always been entranced by tales of courage of those who faced fearsome odds and overcame. Courage is the basis and foundation for all of our other virtues, and the lack of courage diminishes every other virtue that we have. If we are to have Zion in the midst of Babylon, we will need courage. Have you ever imagined that when it came to the test, you would perform some act of bravery? I know I did as a boy. I imagined that someone was in peril and that at the risk of my own life, I saved them. Or in some dangerous confrontation with a fearsome opponent, I had the courage to overcome. Such are our youthful imaginations. 
Almost 70 years of life have taught me that those heroic opportunities are few and far between if they come at all. But the opportunities to stand for that which is right, when the pressures are subtle, and when even our friends are encouraging us to give in to the idolatry of the times, those come along far more frequently. No photographer is there to record the heroism. No journalist will splash it across the newspaper's front page. Just in the quiet contemplation of our conscience, we will know that we face the test of courage, Zion or Babylon. Make no mistake about it, much of Babylon, if not most of it, is evil. And we will not have the pricking of our thumbs to warn us, but wave after wave is coming, crashing against our shores. Will it be Zion or will it be Babylon? If Babylon is the city of the world, Zion is the city of God. The Lord has said of Zion, Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. And for this is Zion, the pure in heart. Wherever we are, whatever city we may live in, we can build our own Zion by the principles of the celestial kingdom and ever seek to become the pure in heart. Zion is the beautiful, and the Lord holds it in his own hands. Our homes can be places which are a refuge and protection, as Zion is. We do not need to become as puppets in the hands of the culture of the place and times. We can be courageous and can walk in the Lord's paths and follow his footsteps. And if we do, we will be called Zion and we will be the people of the Lord. I pray that we will be strengthened to resist the onslaught of Babylon and that we can create Zion in our homes and our communities. Indeed, that we may have Zion in the midst of Babylon. We seek Zion because it is the habitation of our Lord, who is Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. In Zion and from Zion, his luminous and incandescent light will shine forth, and he will rule forever. I bear witness that he lives and loves us and will watch over us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.